This is the Two Spies Podcast, studying the Bible in a different way. What does the verse say? What is the topic being addressed? How does this affect me today? Go deeper in Scripture. Now the conversation begins with your hosts, David and Mark. Welcome to Two Spies Podcast. Uh, Just to let you know, we're going to kind of finish up uh, Genesis chapter 8, 9, and maybe dabble a little bit in 10, and then next week we're going to begin... Fancy yourself a dabbler, do you? Yes. <laughs> Next week, we're going to start the book of Jonah. We're going to go through the book of Jonah. And um, after we finish Jonah, we're going to kind of come back and hit Genesis 10. Because and, Jonah was in the whale under the ark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it just fits. There's no other way. I mean, so anyway, so uh, we'll get into chapter eight. And I guess we're going to kind of start at verse six. We already kind of dealt with the 40 days and there's some things we've already dealt with in our pre- previous podcasts um, that we probably won't get into too many details. So um, we're not necessarily going to go verse by verse and do a nitpicking of everything, but um, we're just nitpicking is what we do best. That's right. <laughs> we'll go about every single letter word. So Genesis chapter eight, verse six uh, says at the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made and sent forth a raven. Um, Verse 7, I went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah then sent out the dove, and and we'll get to that point. But I kind of want to stop, and this ver- there's only one verse about the raven. And then it just kind of disappears. And I sent David a few thoughts that I've read, um, some ideas in regards to the raven. Um, that one was the raven died, which I don't believe because why would God save the raven and then just let it? Okay, its purpose was to be sent from the ark and die. Um, <laughs> I, I don't believe that. Well, the question now would be, uh, how do we have ravens if there were only two saved? <laughs> it's an unclean bird, so there would have only been two. Well, yeah, exactly. So, they couldn't multiply. Yeah. So, so. Um, there Which was an- first the raven or the egg. That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then... Uh, I had a couple of thoughts that Noah could have been sending out the raven along with the dove, but he just didn't mention the raven again. Um, I'm not uh, too sure about that thought process. Um, So the one that I kind of came up with was that raven, the raven could have survived on the dead carcasses and the dead animals and so forth and could have just made its way landing on the bodies. And David kind of mentioned what I shot, which I never thought about was the raven just simply could have, Landed on top of the ark and just said, you know what? I'm just going to chill here and not go back inside. I don't want to go back in there. It stinks. This <laughs> <laughs> is loud and everybody won't shut up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the other animals. So you you found some interesting things about the raven. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, there's a lot of YouTube videos that y'all can go just look up and, and look at. Uh, just type in YouTube raven intelligence test or something anything that along those lines you'll find some neat stuff um ravens as far as like uh their ability to to think and reason uh their their logic abilities to fig- to figure out puzzles etc are considered to be on the level of dolphins and chimpanzees or orangutans i think orangutans are the top level as far as uh primate that includes humans too, right? <laughs> so, but uh, ravens are up on that level of thinking. And a lot of the videos I watched would be kind of showing off that a guy had trained this raven to do X trick. 
and then he would train them to do something else. He would combine a couple of things in the end and let the Raven figure it out. So one was like uh, he had some, he, the guy would hide some food back in a box so the Raven can see it. It's a glass box. It has a very small, slender door. He could get his beak in, but it's too far away from his beak. So the guy has placed a, one of the tricks that the Ravens easily do is they, they can sit on a stick that has a, a string hanging down. If there's food at the bottom of the string, they can stand on one leg, pick up the string with the other foot, and then to gather up slack, they will basically hold it in their beak and readjust their, their loose hand again. So in that way, they keep pulling it up, pulling it up, pulling it up. Now they can get to it, whatever it is. So the guy would, would uh, tie a small stick at the end of the string. The raven would see that he couldn't get to the food. He would go up there, get on top of the string, uh, the, the stick, pull the string up, get the small stick, go back and try it and see that it doesn't work. So the other things were that there were these three uh, compartments with stones. It was like a little small gel. You could reach through the bars and it had a small stone inside of each three of them. He took the small stick and worked the stone out of the little jail. When the stone comes out of the, the window, he could get his beak on it. He gets it out. He takes it over to this box and drops it in. And when it goes in that little box, there's a longer stick in there. And that longer stick is on top of a little, uh, basically a weight-activated door. If you put enough weight on it, it would open. He drops the stone in, looks at it, nothing happens. He goes back, gets the small stick again, goes to the second jail, and gets the little stone out of the second jail. Puts the small stick down, grabs the stone, goes in there and drops it in. So on, so on, goes to the third one. He has to drop in all three to have enough weight to open the door. When he does that, the long stick drops out. <laughs> he gets the long stick, goes over to the food, and, and he's able to get the food out and eat it. So just a lot of different little trials and stuff. They would train ravens and in individual tricks. And then combine those tricks in some way that he would have to figure it out himself. Mm. And over and over again, I, there was a, what do you want to call it? Uh, uh, grace is not the word, like a grace period. There was a cutoff line that they could not reason out, like if they were too young. Once they got to a certain age, like, uh, like almost like an adolescent age for a crow or for a raven, they were able to figure out almost any trick that was given to them. So uh, there was one or two I came across as like they have never figured this one out. Like they would take the string thing with uh, the food on the end of it. It would be tied so that it was going up over something and then hanging down on the other side of it, they could see the food. So when you pull down on the string, the food would come up. It's counterintuitive in a way. <laughs> you pull down, the food comes up. Uh, at the end of this trial, it was determined that no raven ever figured this one out. <laughs> but on a, in a, on, a, on a regular level of I pull the string up, the food comes up, I readjust my foot and my beak and do that until the slag is taken up. They, they're very smart. So they have uh, these super excellent memories. They hide food everywhere. I, I don't know if I read they don't have a sense of smell or they don't have a good sense of smell. But they don't go hunting their food by smell. They find their food. They go hide it. They memorize where it's at. They also watch other ravens, other birds hide their food. If 
they see one hide its food. If they're friends, they don't go steal it. <laughs> but if they're not friends, that, that raven over there has stolen my food in the past. They'll wait till he flies off and then go steal his food. So uh, in this sense, though, ravens um, make like cultures or societies. And those that we trust are our guys. They're our gang. And those that we don't trust, they're not our gang. They're, they're the enemy. Mm. So uh, some of the little trials I found, though, between tr would prove that they do or do not trust one another and also with humans. So I had told Mark this example a while ago. We have a raven that's been hiding food. We're watching from a window, and the raven knows that we're going to come in, one of us. I go in there every single time. He flies up into the corner onto a, a, a limb or something on one of the trees we fix in the, the bird sanctuary, blah, blah, blah. He watches me. I go over, pick his food out, and take it and leave. After about three or four times of this, he grows a grudge against me, doesn't like me, and doesn't trust me at all. And when I start going back in and getting near his food stash, he starts getting agitated and swooping at me or whatever. <laughs> Mark comes in. This is a whole different trial. Same raven. Mark comes in. Every time he hides food, you go near their food, you pick it up, pick up the cover they hid it under, you look at it, he watches you, and you just put the cover back down. He sees that you leave the food, he starts establishing, I can trust this guy. I don't know, I don't like that other guy, but I can trust this guy. So every time Mark comes back into where the raven's at, where he's hiding food, the raven shows signs that he is perfectly friendly with Mark and doesn't have an issue with him. That's good. So... <laughs> You're the Raven Whisperer. <laughs> Quote the Raven Nevermore. <laughs> I never quoted him once. Yeah, <laughs> that's another thing too. Uh, crows are included on on a lot of this, but crows and ravens both uh, can talk. There, we think about stuff like parrots and everything, but uh, ravens are talking birds. So I'm not sure what Edgar Allan Poe meant by that, but <laughs> I don't know the whole point. What the point of that poem is? I haven't ever studied it, but. Well, he wrote a lot of depression stuff, so it was probably just doing. Because I mean, ravens also, um, you know, there's these legends and other in other parts of the world where they're referred to as like death birds. Yeah, you see a raven, you think death. Or, um, I was reading also where um, they can steal your soul right, yeah. right out of your ear. Exactly. Well, I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this. I wish I could remember where, but it was talking about the different legends with ravens. And like I said, there's one that associates with death. But there's another um, legend, obviously it's not true, but they associate that ravens were Christians who just didn't pass on to the next world. So they're they're here to... So ravens are Catholics. Yeah, in, I don't in know. Purgatory. <laughs> Apparently, I, I don't really know the gist. I mean, it's a legend, but I just thought it was interesting that there's these different legends with ravens. And I guess because they're so intelligent that we associate them with these concepts that we understand, like maybe they're people in another life or, um, you know, maybe they're associating with something, you know, yeah. they can sense death and, and so forth. There's so, a lot of different myths and legends about black animals, black yeah. dogs, black cats. Yeah. In the Salem witch trials, black cats were caught and burned at the stake. Like they were a, a witch in a shape shifted mode. Yeah, that's true. So black Ravens also, and in fact, uh, raven is odiv. Odiv comes from adav, means to become evening or to grow dark. Just so, uh, this is on the very first page of Genesis. This says uh, over and over again. Well, it says six times. Excuse me, not over and over. <laughs> it says six <laughs> times, and there was ediv, and there was morning. Vayi ediv, vayi bulkid, 
Yom, uh, Yom Echad, the day one, it says it again for day two, it says it again for day three. So you see this word all over the place. It becomes darker. It goes dark. But uh, so on this raven right here, though, let's see. It's an unclean bird. If you want the clean animals, unclean animals list, because we can't, we have kind of hit on that. That's standard Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 4, uh, 14. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. So this particular one, uh, Leviticus 11, 15, and Deuteronomy 14, 14, is where any kind of raven, like ravens, hawks, vultures, etc., all unclean yeah. birds. <laughs> but uh, I did a little bit of looking through Scripture just to see, because these are some things like we're associating the name with dark or becoming dark. It's an unclean bird, yeah, but... Most of the things we just now said are things that we have found from secular YouTube videos or their other religions, myths and stuff about them. Right. So I, you, you know how I do. I usually look through a, for a word through the Bible and see what stories or ideas are associated with it right. to say what symbolisms it is. So Isaiah 34, 11. Isaiah 34, 11 couples the raven with the hawk to live and eat them after it's wiped out. So... There was a couple of different places. Number one, a hawk is also unclean. So you got two unclean birds living in a place after a desolation or a wiping out. So it's like a curse to an empty place. Um, but in 1 Kings 17, 4 and 6, these unclean birds were at least obedient to the word of God, bringing meat to Elijah. Yeah. So... Uh, Hadn't thought about that. He got an unclean bird touching his food and bringing it to him, and he's eating it. And that unclean bird is obeying God. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I, well, the reason he was out there by the brook Kareth is because the people of God were an unobedient people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Job thirty-eight, forty-one. God provides food for the ravens. And we, I think we mentioned this in our last podcast, talking about God seeing the deer give birth and when you're not there God is there you didn't know what happened God watching God is with every single animal out there uh, providing their food watching their birth uh, just overall caring for everything that lives just like he does us uh, let's see <laughs> I added this in my notes who cares for the animals God does that's why the ark was 450 foot long 75 foot five, uh, 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall in three tiers. <laughs> it's much bigger than eight people need. <laughs> if he was going to make it just for eight people, for humanity and, and God doesn't care about animals, then the boat needs to be, you know, an average yacht size or whatever, right? Uh, let's see. Over in Psalm 147, just again says, God provides food for the ravens. He builds up Jerusalem and heals the brokenhearted and feeds the beast. That's that's kind of what I got on Raven there. I'm curious um, when it deals with Raven and it talks about um, the Raven was sent out uh, until the waters were dried up from the earth. The word earth there is pretty much Eris, which means the whole earth. When in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, the what whole, are you getting at, Mark? The globe. Well, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm just curious. So, you look down and. Um, verse eight, when he sends the when he sends the dove to see if the waters have subdued subsided from the face of the ground, 
uh, the face of the ground is a different word. Um, Adama, yeah. uh, dealing with a specific land or region or area, not necessarily the global world, but then, you know, you see later on, he does talk about the whole earth. I'm just wondering, do you think there's any kind of, I mean, I know it's just interchangeable words dealing with the ground and the earth, but I just wasn't sure if you thought of anything. I didn't notice that to even think about it ahead of time. So I will say last time we saw this kind of thing, it was kind of zeroing down more and more into uh, specifics. Uh, what was it on the first page, first chapter, first verse? Uh, yeah. God made the heavens and the edits. And then right. later on, he takes Adam out of the Adama. Right. So on this right here, I guess you could look at it number one and say when the raven went out, uh, the edits was still completely covered. Well, maybe that's why he sent. Maybe that's why he sent the dove because the raven's gone, been gone for a while, and he sent the raven to look over the earth. And apparently, he just got either you know, okay, the raven hasn't come back, or um, <laughs> if the raven hasn't come back to to me, then maybe he found land somewhere around the earth. So I want to send the dove now to find for this area. Because maybe, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't looked at the dove, but maybe the dove doesn't fly as far as the raven and it's more localized, more central. I didn't think about that. Um, I, didn't, I didn't look at uh, so just, flight I don't know, ranges. Just came, to my, just came to my mind right now. What you got to think about carrier pigeons, too? What's the, what's the average yeah. distance a carrier pigeon will go? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, those would be good questions for you, the listener, to look up because yeah. we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Those just yeah, just random thoughts that kind of. But I would say you're right me, in the in in the sense of what I'm getting at. Uh, when we originally saw the word edits, it was more of a broad term. Mm -hmm. Then we saw Adam taken out of the Adama, right? And then we saw him made from the afar of the Adama, the dust of the of the dirt, yeah, dust of the ground. So we kept seeing this. Uh, trickling down into a more and more specific thing, so I would yeah I would go with what you're saying there. It's a good idea. I let's see. I see in my notes here. I told you I had brought some notes from uh, or suggestions from my wife. I just asked her, "What do you think about the Raven? Why didn't he come back?" She said he got lost, <laughs> <laughs> or he was selfish, <laughs> which kind of goes along with some of the stuff I I had found. So I said, "So why did the dove come back?" Because he was nice and sweet. <laughs> Doves are so nice. That's why they're. That's why they carry messages and come back. <laughs> yeah, that, that's obviously why we don't use ravens to take uh, married. We don't use carrier ravens because they'll never come back. <laughs> that's right. So well, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit is referred to as a dove. I mean, that's yeah. why. That's why. I mean, there's something about the dove that um, loyal and. And just a different kind of bird. So loyal brings messages, returns. Yeah, the Holy Spirit brings messages and is trying to return man to God. Yeah, sure. We, we could depend. I mean, yeah. You know, once you depend on a dove, I think. So, hmm. and it's also kind of interesting. Something you brought up. I don't know if I'm skipping too far ahead, but um, the dove came back, verse eleven, um, and in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive eat, olive leaf. Yeah, and you mentioned to me um, earlier today about the olive leaf kind of resembling peace, which I thought was kind of interesting. I, you know, I just read it through and and didn't even write that note down. 
I'm thinking um, about the symbolism that could be brought out and in, into these verses. I just thought, okay, it's a leaf. But I started kind of thinking more and more <clears throat> about the peace. You know, what they just witnessed was judgment. What they just witnessed was yeah, um, of death and and this this. I'm sure no one of them were scared. I mean, during the they're on this boat and you could hear screams and I don't know if they were scared, but you hear people, you know, bodies yeah. hitting the boat and all this stuff. And, and, you know, the dove comes and, and, um, now there's peace. Peace is brought. So it's kind of like a calm, uh, any other thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would. Well, I mean, no, I, I just, I agree with you. And I think, uh, the olive leaf kind of points almost to Israel peace and like, uh, Covenant, yeah. Because we know God's making covenant with Him, or, or on the, coming, yeah. we're right on the tail of that coming up right here in the next couple of verses. But uh, just a dove being a messenger, faithful, peaceful, bringing back a sign of peace. I, and we didn't say that that way, but traditionally, outside of the Bible, in other cultures, in older days, uh, the olive branch was a a symbol of peace between warring countries who were saying, okay, let's make a truce. That was a sign of a truce, so. Right. Well, uh, you know, he waited seven days, the dove came, and waited seven more days, and the dove came. Um, so he's waiting um, completion, a, a complete rotation of, of days, seven, meaning completion. So he's waiting a full completion um, to wait and, and test things again, so. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts with the dove and the raven? The dove, yeah, the raven. I was kind of done with the the raven, but uh, on the dove, I want to try not to get too far off track. <laughs> we do get to, because I, I tried to look through this right here and say, like Mark said a while ago, what we've already looked at pretty in depth or close enough. We're not going to bog down in again tonight. So I tried to look through here and see the, some of the main ideas that we haven't really touched on. Right. Um, Let's see, eight thirteen in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters dried up from off the earth, or dried from off the earth. Yeah. Um, this is seen in Jewish interpretation as the first day of the first month. This is Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year or New Year's. So I did some following with the dove through Scripture, and did some following through Scripture with New Year's. Just to see what all they show up. So, uh, I don't know how long you want to spend on that, but. Well, it's kind of weird. You just say that, and I have never paid attention to the date in the month when he got off the ark. And I'm thinking New Year's. We, we often do uh, New Year's resolutions. Well, it's he didn't get off right there. <clears throat> right. But yeah. it is when he's saying that the water's dried up. Yeah. So, so he removed like a, the covering that day. Right. So, I'm thinking, you know. As you say that, I'm thinking New Year's resolutions, fresh start, fresh goals. Yeah. Um, you're kind of restarting your life to the point. So, yeah, I mean, I'm curious what you have. So I just didn't want to go too far with the dove and stay on the dove for the next hour. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. As the uh, as Hassan said, the dove was nice and sweet. Doves are actually clean birds. This would have been one of the ones that he would have brought uh, seven Seven pairs? Was it seven pairs or seven? We're not, don't worry about that. <laughs> Go back and look. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he gets off 
the boat and he has uh, some sacrifices. And we'll, we'll, I guess I'm jumping ahead on that also. He's at 820. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So uh, it's a clean animal, so it can be offered. He used some, they they are used for uh, let's see two different ones. One is a sin offering. One is a burnt offering. Let's see Genesis eight twenty. In eight twenty, he uses it as a burnt offering. That's a olot, plural ola or Allah. It means it's basically a verb for to go up. So when you burn an offering, the smoke goes up. That particular offering is basically, I mean, if you wanted to translate it literally, that's an up offering. You burn it to get it to go up. It's a pleasing aroma to God because he smells it. By the way, you know God likes the pleasing aroma of burning meat, <laughs> like steak. Because God's a steak eater. <laughs> uh, we, know, we know Jesus likes fish, so I mean, yeah. I mean, he, he liked cooking it and burning it. I don't know if it was a sacrifice, I mean, it was for food, but anyway. <laughs> Let's see. What I found was through like uh, Leviticus. I'll go ahead and turn here. If you don't, if you're not familiar with Leviticus, I don't know what you've been waiting on. But now is the time to open this book. Uh, Leviticus one fourteen. In if you if you just look at your again, we've said it before. These are not uh, inspired headings, but if you look through your headings in your Bible, at, uh, chapter headings. Leviticus 1 is laws for burnt offerings. Leviticus 2 is laws for grain offerings. Chapter 3 is laws for peace offerings. 4 is laws for sin offerings. And that stretches into 5 a little bit. Uh, towards the end of 5, you have laws for guilt offerings. And then you have the priest and the offerings, which goes on into chapter 7. I think that's that's all of them. By the way, uh, for our listeners, uh, what pa- what page number are you on? <laughs> just uh, so they can follow with you page 81 yeah okay, there you go. in the bible <laughs> so turn to page 81 in your bible uh, leviticus 1 which was about burnt offerings 14 verse 14 if his offering to the lord is a burnt offering of birds then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear open he shall tear it open by its wings, but he shall not sever it completely, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That'll preach. <laughs> if you if you really think about it, I mean, there's details here I've read before, never paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Verse 15: A priest shall uh, wring off its head and burn it on the offering. You rip off the bird's head first and throw it on the burnt the fire first. This is a being a priest would be a gruesome job. You'd be yeah. covered in blood your whole life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back then you were all bloody and you had to get your hands dirty. Now you wear a suit and you sit in an office. I mean, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> you mean if you're a priest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, but they, here's something I've seen in other places, other sacrifices and, and ceremonies, though. You tear a bird open by its wings, but you don't sever it completely in half. Kind of looks like you, if you can picture taking the bird and, and ripping it in opposite directions by the wings, it's spread out like a cross. Uh, and you would throw that on the fire. But you don't sever it completely in half, almost kind of like uh, Jesus was, he had no bone broken. Yeah. Neat pictures here in, in the sacrifices, but Interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Leviticus 5, 7. If he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So chapter 5 is uh, basically starts with chapter 4 and has if a priest anointed priest sins, you do this sacrifice. If the whole congregation sins, then you're going to do this sacrifice. If a leader of the people sins, then it takes this one. The common people sin, you do it this way. If an individual of the common people sins, you do it this way. You bring this particular animal. But after all is said and done, if he cannot afford a lamb, here's here's our uh, Christmas morning um, poor man Offering, what's it? What's one? What, what am I looking for? Poor, poor man's <laughs> sermon illustration. Nice. Joseph and Mary brought two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever it was, and they made that for the offering. They presented Jesus um, to Simeon <laughs> and Anna. So it just kind of shows they could not afford a lamb. They still brought the lamb, though. They did. They didn't <laughs> know it. They still brought the lamb. Let's see. In the same chapter, Leviticus 5, and this is verse 11. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, he shall bring as his offering for the sin he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. So two turtle doves is not actually the poorest. It's a, basically a middle class, upper uh, or lower middle class offering, basically. Because there's burnt offerings or sin offerings of animals like sheep and goats, etc. Then there's ones that are uh, poor, for poor men like birds. And then poorer again, it's just grain, grain offerings. Leviticus 12, it's an offering for purification. This is the, uh, you can link Leviticus 12 with Luke 2. When you look at the details there about them going to see uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. It was the days of her purification and if you look in Leviticus 12 you got uh, towards the end it's supposed to be a lamb and a pigeon or turtle dove yeah lamb and two turtle doves or two pigeons verse 8 well if she cannot afford a lamb right so back in verse 6 <clears throat> um, she shall bring to the priest of the enter the tent of meeting a lamb a year old and a pigeon or a turtle dove, so a lamb and a bird. And then verse 8, like you've got there, if she cannot afford the lamb, she can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. So this is, uh, we need to go into this or not. It's, it's something I've just recently studied, so that's why I'm going to go ahead and say it's an issue of, of blood. So it's, uh, as in the time of, let's see, Leviticus 12, Two, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the time of her menstruation. 
You can link this over to Leviticus 15, and you can find out that uh, a woman who is bleeding or has an issue of blood that is not regular menstruation, she is unclean for seven days after that stops. So the woman who came to uh, the, into the crowd and touched Jesus, him, she's been bleeding 12 years. Yeah. There is not a day she is ever clean. She is always unclean. So it's the issue of blood, though. It's a matter of bodily fluids coming out of the body that makes us unclean. So there's some, there's some things there. I mean, not to get into the whole system, but there's some things there. Basically, God says, you're unclean to live in my camp, to live in my presence. So I want to grab, though, from Leviticus 12, uh, this thing that we say. Well, let's go back and, and grab from Genesis 8. What is the dove about? Faithful, obedient to its purpose and cause. Um, in Leviticus 5, it is basically a sin offering. Leviticus 12 is for purification. Back in Leviticus 1. In Leviticus 1, it goes to different offerings, and the, and the birds are mentioned in that. But verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. As far as the burnt offering is concerned, that's the only reason that's given for the burnt offering, that you may be accepted before the Lord. So we got Noah getting off the boat here and offers burnt offerings. He's obviously saying, hey, thank you, God, we made it through a worldwide judgment, and uh, we just want to be accepted by you, please. <laughs> so we're going to do some burnt offering here. <coughs> so doves, faithful, uh, acceptance, middle-class sin offering, means middle of the road. It's kind of grabbing everybody in every direction that way. Uh, purification, Leviticus 14, it's the sin offering and the cleansing ceremony for a leper. There is a, you know, you, the, what is it? Ten lepers came to Jesus, or they, they basically hollered at him from a distance to heal them. He heals them when he, he says, uh, go show yourself to the priest. Yeah. And as you go, you're going to be healed, basically. And one, some, the Samaritan is the one that comes back. The thing that's neat about that right there is Jesus comes along in his day and age, starts healing people with leprosy. He tells these guys to go show themselves to the priest. So people would have been showing up during the time of Jesus at the temple saying, uh, okay, so I had like leprosy. And the priest jumps back and says, what? And he said, no, 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 I'm healed now. And uh, the guy who healed me told me to come show myself to you because there's some kind of sacrifice ceremony you got to do. <laughs> and so they're flipping back to their Torah going, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And they find Leviticus 14 because they've never had to use it before. I mean, maybe, but you're going to go back all the way back to Naaman. Right. But other than that, they never used it. The guys who were alive during Jesus' time, they never used that ceremony. They got to go back and look it up. <laughs> because people keep showing up all the time saying, oh, oh I had leprosy, now I'm clean. <laughs> <laughs> That's so the, never happened before. Yeah, the, so the dove is used for the part of the cleansing ceremony. Uh, let's see. Numbers 6. There's a cleansing ceremony for Nazarite bow takers. If the Nazarite has... Been a Nazarite for a while, but he comes by accident in contact with a dead body. All the time that he has been doing the Nazarite thing doesn't count. He's got to, if I remember right, he's got to spend like wash with water, spend seven days after he touched a dead body. They do some kind of uh, cleansing ceremony involving a dove uh, 
and he starts all over with his whole his whole uh, pledge to God. Second Kings six twenty five. Dove dung is sold for silver, <laughs> along with donkey heads. <laughs> so there's <laughs> there's time of uh, a time of famine going on there. But you remember, uh, is it Ezekiel? who always did these uh, crazy examples, like living examples when God told him to prophesy X and do it this way, he would do something like dig through that wall of the city with your hands and then take a suitcase with you and start walking. And people are going to ask you what you're doing. Then you can prophesy my message to him. <laughs> so uh, he tells him at one point to, uh, it's very famous. Everybody loves Ezekiel bread because it's so healthy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it has this nice Bible verse on the side of the bread package, so Christians buy it. <laughs> but uh, Ezekiel bread is a little of this and a little of that. A little bit of this seed, a little bit of milt and spellet and whatever else. The little, I don't know, I'm saying I'm wrong, but millet and spelt, yeah. What? I don't say we need to get a sponsorship from Ezekiel bread. <laughs> For saying any of that. <laughs> well, I want, they're not going to like me when I get done. <laughs> this bread is not health food. It is famine food. It means you ain't got jack. You're going to scrape up a little bit of this seed and a little bit of this seed, and you're going to grind them together just to barely get a loaf. Mm. So that's what God was telling him to do when he gave him that recipe, is take the little tiny bit you stuff you've got, and put it all together so you can have something. It's <laughs> like, uh, I think I used to work with a guy, his wife called it uh, cabinet surprise <laughs> when they're having soup and they're basically cleaning out the cupboards. <laughs> we got a little bit of this yeah, and a little bit of there. that. Just throw yeah. it all in the pot and turn the heat on and boil it. Yeah, I, me- I remember doing uh, working in a soup kitchen and I was kind of <laughs> surprised because they were like, we put in, a, they had a huge pot and I'm like, what goes in the pot? Everything. <laughs> and I just kind of like chuckled like yeah that's funny and they just started pouring stuff in there and I'm like oh you're serious she's like yeah we boil everything everything <laughs> whatever they have they make it, they make a big soup and I'm like oh I'm like well I'm just curious why y'all do that and they're like we don't have time to cook like meals we just make one big meal and a soup yeah I mean meat Vegetables, fruit, everything. Yeah, it was just kind of like crazy. I don't know about fruit. I would rather have that retained out. But yeah, I, I was just kind of stunned. <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard the story of a rock soup? I have not. It was some story I heard in elementary school, so I probably tell it wrong. But this this guy is hungry. He's got nothing. He picks up. He's going into this town. He picks up a couple of stones, and he goes and sits in the town square and sits down. He's got his stones in his hand, and somebody says. What are you going to do with that? I think it was an old English setting. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? So I'm going to make some soup. <laughs> How are you going to make soup with that? I'm going to make stone soup. Or, and it was called rock soup, I think. But uh, he says, well, that doesn't sound very interesting. He says, oh, it's actually pretty good. He said, but you know, it, it really is really as good when you have some carrots. You don't have any carrots, do you? That adds a lot of flavor to the, to the rocks. <laughs> so in the end, after it's all said and done, people are coming out of the woodwork and they brought potatoes and carrots and onions and leeks and they whatever else. And they chop it up and they throw it in the soup. And the very bottom of this boiling pot is these rocks the guy brought. And it's called rock soup. <laughs> but it was just a matter of having something to get started 
getting people to bring out the good stuff. <laughs> so, what were we talking about? <laughs> you should have called it like wood soup, and you needed the wood to, for the fire. It's not in the soup, though. To start to boil the soup, though. It was part of the soup. <laughs> Anyways, oh, we're talking about uh, Doves. dove dung. Yeah, because you had to sell it. Oh, it's, this is how we got on the uh, rock soup. <laughs> Ezekiel <laughs> makes the Ezekiel bread. God tells him to cook it over a fire, and the fuel for the fire is human feces, which would be unclean. He says, I've never done anything like that unclean, God. Please don't make me do that. So he says, okay, then you can use cow dung. So I'm thinking, honestly, there's a famine in the Second Kings 6 chapter. You're going to sell a donkey head for X amount, and you're going to sell dove dung for X amount of silver. So these things have worth. Why? Because they're going to cook the donkey head. They need a, the dove's dung to start a fire. But uh, so, I mean, doves. <laughs> you know, I, I just think we lost listeners. From last week, we're talking about wolves' breast milk and ru- ruling a country and ruling a nation. To now, we're selling uh, dove dung for money, yeah, for silver. We have we want to rule our kingdom because we are, we were fed from wolves' breast milk, and we're going to we're going to uh, supply our nation with uh, yeah. dove dung. Yeah, well, donkey we're heads. Just working it out. We're yeah. gonna we're gonna feed them donkey heads. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is. Uh, so far, doves are associated with faithful, obedient to its purpose, burnt offerings, which are for acceptance, purification, cleansing ceremonies. Three different cleansing ceremonies, by the way. Lepers, women's, uh, women's, women's, <laughs> women with issues of blood, and also women after childbearing, and Nazarite vows. And then they're also associated with here with treasure or silver. Uh, going on Psalm 55 6 wings like a dove basically the psalm is about I wish I had wings like a dove to take me out of here so they're associated with freedom and safety Psalm 68 13 associated with treasure and the song of songs or song of Solomon it's a lot of, there's a lot of poetic language there for lovers and it's associated three times they say to the other one the, the man or the woman says to the other one you have uh, eyes like a dove. You have beautiful eyes like a dove. Or they, they, they call the other one the nickname, you're my dove. So kind of poetic language for lovers, a sweet thing. Isaiah thirty-eight fourteen and Isaiah 59, 11, the phrase moaning like a dove refers to weakness and sickness under oppression. In both cases, there are several different places in the... Uh, other prophets, I didn't write them all down because I basically went to the end of Isaiah. Yeah, I've got too much stuff on Isaiah. I'm not going to look at all that, but <laughs> at the end of all the prophets, you have a handful, let's see, of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Nahum, all using references to the dove, the moaning of a dove, and they're all linked to oppression and weakness. Let's see, Isaiah 51, the Lord's comfort for Zion. 51, 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Verse 14, 
He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. This is some of the, the stuff that the main ideas of this particular chapter and uh, Isaiah 51. I didn't, like I said, I didn't want to get too bogged down in it, but and again, with the chapter headings, just yeah. going through Isaiah, the Lord's comfort for Zion, the Lord's coming salvation, Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 ends and heads on into all of chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. So you have him promising comfort for Zion, him coming, saying, uh, coming salvation, and then it has a little bit about the one who's going to come give it and how we're going to be healed by his wounds. And then Isaiah 54 is called the eternal covenant of peace. Let's see. I did find it pretty interesting. There's a phrase like the days of Noah in that Isaiah 54 there. Sorry, give me a second. I'm trying to figure out my point for why I was going through Isaiah for the dove. Because <laughs> I haven't run across the word yet. He does, uh, as you see, the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 53. After that, the eternal covenant of peace. He separates people, two groups. There's the righteous and there's anyone who stirs up strife. <clears throat> so you start seeing this uh, concept through the rest of the chapters here. The compassion of the Lord comes back in again, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 56 talks about salvation for foreigners and Israel's irresponsible leaders. Another separation there, basically believers and non-believers. But salvation for foreigners, we came in because of the suffering, suffering servant back in Isaiah 52, mm. 53, which is Jesus. So there's a whole lot of stuff, by the way, in the, in the Old Testament about foreigners coming to yeah. Yahweh God, coming to Israel's God. Isaiah 58, true and false fasting. So the kind of he's taking a look at uh, true religion. And then Isaiah 59, evil and oppression. This is where I got into the, the concept of evil and oppression uh, throughout some of the prophets with the dove. It's a weak, sweet little bird, and under some evil oppressor, it has no power. Uh, so as we come down through these concepts in Isaiah of a promised salvation, a one who's coming to bring it, and a story about him, a covenant of peace being presented, people being separated in two camps of saved and unsaved, uh, salvation for foreigners being brought in. Let's see, Isaiah 57, Israel's feudal idolatry and comfort for the contrite. Pretty interesting here, the, the person who wants to be in the camp of the saved, who wants to be like a dove, the person who wants to be uh, saved by God by because they are saying, I'm sweet and innocent and lowly, and I'm being oppressed. <laughs> this is what uh, the Lord says there. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of lowly spirit. The one who is contrite, the one who is low, the one who is broken, who is oppressed. God says, I sit on the throne of the whole entire everything way up in heaven. And I also live with that one. I'm with that one. It's pretty cool. Then uh, back to the idea of evil and oppression. Isaiah 59, 11. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice. 
uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I wrote something there. and it's, Oh, that must be, but there is none. Sorry, typo. <laughs> but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. So his relation here of the dove is we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice. There is evil and oppression going on. Hmm. It's right before judgment and redemption. And then in Isaiah 60, the future glory of Israel, we see this whole uh, restoral phase through the, through the doves right there. So the coming foreigners or the foreigners that are coming to the God of Israel flocking like doves is our last kind of link to the dove. Let's see. There's a handful of mentions throughout Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and I'm sorry, I'm just reading straight notes here. Throughout Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Nahum, Nahum's last mention is about slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breast. And I just thought, Beating beating breast is a familiar phrase. That's where's that going to be? I start looking, find it finally. Beating their breast is a sign of woe and repentance. The tax collector in Luke eighteen beat his breast, basically looking down. He wouldn't look up at God, and he says, "I'm not worthy, God. Please, please have mercy on me." Luke twenty three forty eight. After Jesus' death, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. Woe and repentance. So the, the, basically to sum it up, the, the symbols and concepts linked to the dove, we see in Noah's story, the dove was faithful, obedient to its purpose and cause. He's linked to purification and cleansing. Silver, treasure, and by the way, silver is a redemption metal. Freedom and safety. Weakness under oppression, uh, oppression, therefore needing a deliverer. That's kind of what Isaiah and uh, the other ones are calling out for. We're oppressed. We need a deliverer. He's linked to humble believers. He's linked to foreign believers. And we see moaning like doves linked to beating breast, a sign of woe and repentance. Woe and repentance brings us to become a believer. It brings us to the weakness under oppression that God will come save us and deliver us. The dove of her all, yes, is a sign of the Holy Spirit, but right. it's in a way it's a sign of the humbled believer. It's hmm, interesting. Oh, like as you're talking about all that, and I'm and I'm rewinding <clears throat> back to uh, some of the verses about Noah sending out the dove and then coming back, and again, you know, you think you just had this oppression, this this. Uh, this, this judgment and um, this this negative, this bad stuff happening, and you know, you again, you're sending out these animals. You're hoping the water's going down. You're hoping you're not going to be stuck here because you really don't know the what's next, what's going to happen. You just yeah. know God told you about this ark and a flood's coming. When you got on, you didn't know it was going to be a year, but after yeah. you know nine or ten months, you're thinking, <laughs> right? How long is this going to be? Yeah, and so you know you're. <clears throat> So in a sense, I'm thinking Noah and his family are kind of under oppression. They're stuck in this boat for a long time, and they don't know what's going to happen. You're stuck with that raven. <laughs> Nevermore. Stealing their food. <laughs> <laughs> and so the raven goes out. and then Which the bird should we out. sing? Get that raven and send him out there. He, he's driving me nuts. <laughs> and... Uh, car! Car! <laughs> he's learning their language. He knows how to talk to them and everything. 
And uh, so you send out the dove and he comes back and, and, you know, the dove, like we talked about, um, the dove represents a lot of things. It represents, you know, a sacrifice. It represents um, the Holy Spirit. It represents this oppression and, and us needing um, to get under, out of the oppression. And so when you think about the dove coming back with the leaf of peace, it's kind of like, okay, the oppression's gone. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit is here. God is here. He's bringing peace to us. And then after that happens and, and the dove doesn't come back, um, then the next words are, God says, okay, get out, everyone. Yeah. Go, go out. And so I think it's kind of the oppression lifted. And then it's kind of like you talked about, you know, the new year, uh, the first day, it, it, it's time to begin again. And then God starts again with this, okay, everyone be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Um, going back to what he said to Adam initially. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like a completely restart in a sense. Yeah. And um, I think when when it gets to that point where um, Noah makes these sacrifices, builds an altar, and does a burnt sacrifice, and you know, like you said, it it, it made this pleasing aroma to God. You know, I used to wonder. Well, one, um, God can't technically smell; he's a spirit. Um, so what does it mean that when God smells a pleasing aroma? And oftentimes the Bible uses, um, I forget the word, but it describes God in physical form. No, no, it's not all of you. But <laughs> personification. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the Bible uses like physical forms to describe God, like uh, you know, God, God show me your face. No, but you see my back. Um, God reaches out his hand. Well, he doesn't have a physical hand. He's a spirit. So there's descriptions about God that we describe when he smells a pleasing aroma. Um, I don't think he necessarily smells it in the sense that we think. I think it's more of a clarification of um, Noah is being obedient to God. Noah doesn't know what's going to happen next. Um, he just witnessed God do something, um, you know, judgment came. And so, but still, when he got off the ark, the first thing he did was build an altar. And yeah. I, th I think to God, it was like, I chose the right man. This guy is going to be obedient. Yeah. This Praise, guy is he's going praising and, th and being thankful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, so I think, you know, God obviously knew what was going to happen, but in that moment, because we, we, we talk in moments because we, we can't see what's in the future. Yeah. God can. So we got to live in this moment. So when we talk about um, God um, with with the conversation with Abraham that we'll get to when we get to that point and, and God having that conversation, can God be talked out of something? Um, again, we're, we're speaking to God in moments. And so here um, in that moment, you know, it's that God can trust man again. You know, he made the right decision. Um, so, so I hmm. thought it was pretty cool that when he built that altar, um, it was just kind of signifying to God, he's the right man. Um, it shows right here that he's being obedient. And um, from this point on, God's like, because of your obedience, because you're, because I chose you, I, I kept you safe. And now you're built this altar and, you know, altars, you know, we'll get into more later, um, a, a place of not just worship, but a place of remembrance. When you go back to altars, it's, yeah. it's a signification yeah. of remembering what God did. And so when he built the altar, it's not just 
for the moment of, okay, we sacrificed animals, it pleases God, it's going to be a remembrance um, of his obedience and um, God's stamp. And then God adds to by saying, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you or a contract, um, you know, with yeah. you. And, um, you know, I will never destroy the earth with floodwaters, you know. Um, people often say, "Well, God would never destroy the earth." Well, He never. He said He would never destroy it with flood water, flood waters again. Um, He's gonna so, do it with carbon dioxide next time. <laughs> yeah, with all these rumors of war with chemical weapons and stuff. But, no, I'm just talking about global warming. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But also, um, well, do you have any? Uh, I'm kind of at verse 19. Do you have anything kind of prior to that where? Uh, um, 19. Yeah, I was going to go through some uh, New Year's stuff. Okay. Basically, uh, we said is identified as New Year's Day, first day, first month. I just simply typed in first day, first month and look through and see where that shows up, see what's going on. Right here is the end of the flood, so it's a new beginning. Exodus 40, they're putting up the tabernacle for the very first time. It's the one-year anniversary of Israel coming out of Egypt. It's the second Passover. So they put it up, I think they put it up 13 days early of the second Passover. So that would actually be on the first day of the first month because Passover would be the 14th day. Second uh, Chronicles 29, Hezekiah cleans the temple. They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month. That's right before Passover. So you got a, a whole bunch of kings that we'll, we always say this, we'll get into. <laughs> you got a whole bunch yeah. of kings of Judah that were, okay. And there were two or three here and there that would just dot their landscape. That would be like, this guy was really good. Right. So Hezekiah was one of those, and he wanted to uh, do things right by the word of the Lord again. So he cleanses the temple on that day. He's getting ready for Passover, which has not been at, at his point in time, has not been observed for a couple of years. Ezra 7. This is an interesting one. Ezra leaves Babylon to go to Jerusalem to start teaching the people the word of God again. He leaves Babylon on New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah. It's just like Israel coming out of Egypt. Israel comes out of Egypt. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, starts giving Moses the Torah to pin down. And then Ezra, after a after they have ignored it for a couple hundred years, and then they go into Babylon, into exile. When they come out of Babylon, Ezra leaves Babylon for the purpose of coming back to Jerusalem to teach the Word of God on New Year's Day. <laughs> Let's see. Ezra 10. Ezra comes to the end of the list of the men who are married to foreign women. So after he gets back, there's a time where he preaches the word of God for a while. And then there's these guys who are married to all kinds of uh, other cultures. And they're like, guys, this is what got us in trouble in the first place. <laughs> right. So they get, they take a list of the of guys who have married other women and he deals with that list. But uh, he deal, he comes to the end of dealing with that list on Rosh Hashanah again, New Year's Day. So it's a new beginning. It's a cleansing. It's a separation from the world. Like Hezekiah started cleansing for the temple, all this happened right before Passover. Ezra leaves right before Passover to come back and start teaching the Word of God. Teaches the Word of God for a while. 
discovers these uh, this huge group of men who have married foreign women, basically makes them all separate. If you want to be in God's people, you need to separate and marry women from God's people. And then basically does all that or gets to the end of that list just in time to get ready for Passover. A separation from the world, a cleansing. This is kind of like getting all the leaven out of your house, hmm. which is what the Jews did for the first Passover. Yeah. I see Ezekiel 29. This is one that I thought, I don't know how this relates. <laughs> the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel on that day about payment for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had labored hard for the Lord against Tyre. And the Lord was paying him by giving him Egypt. He basically said, I'm giving Egypt into your hand because you, you worked so long on Tyre that I'm going to pay you. I'm, I'm not sure how this goes along with <laughs> how this goes along with uh, New Year's Day, but it's one of the mentions of it. Ezekiel 45, uh, 17, the prince of Ezekiel's temple is to offer sacrifice for the sin offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. This, by the way, is a, my personal opinion. This is not the millennial kingdom temple. This is a temple that was supposed to have been built that the people never came back from Babylon and became obedient again. It never happened. I don't think it's a future plan waiting to happen. I don't think this is a blueprint for us because it doesn't match what you see in other places in end times uh, descriptions of the land that belongs to Israel, that belongs to the tribes. So either way, um, it's, a, it's mentioned in, in that part for a sin offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. That was 45.17, 45.18. On the first day of the first month, take a bull without blemish to purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple, the four corners of the altar, and the post of the gate of the inner court. Do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who, who sinned in ignorance, so you shall make atonement for the temple. And then verse 21 says, you shall keep the Passover. So this uh, New Year's Day is always before the Passover. So you can look at a lot of different concepts that are related to Passover and say, coming out of Egypt, cleansing the temple, the word of God coming to the people. Uh, there's a whole bunch of neat concepts that are all tied together in this. Mm. But what I found interesting in this Ezekiel 45 chapter is that they bring a, let's see, the prince of the temple. He brings the sin offering to make atonement for the house of Israel. But after that, the bull is brought to purify the sanctuary, not the people the building and you take some of the blood of the bull and you paint it on the doorpost of the temple, not the doorpost of the individual home of the family. So the Passover, uh, the angel of death can pass over your house. You're not staying inside. Basically in that though, they painted the blood of the lamb on their own doorpost to protect their families from the wrath of God. It almost seems right here like God is painting the doorpost of his house, the temple. And it's like, we're going to just, we'll just go back and paint the doorpost of the source. And you're all protected then. One reason I came across this was, it says, you do this again on the seventh day for anyone who has sinned in ignorance. So in this, you make atonement for the temple. If, if 
this family, this guy over here sinned and didn't know it. He sinned and did something in ignorance. I want you to make atonement for the temple, not for the man. And then you can celebrate Passover. That guy who messed up unintentionally is included in the Passover, which is odd because, uh, let's see, this is Passover original. The blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost of your house to keep the death angel out. Sorry, I'm reading notes again that you've already heard out of my mouth. <laughs> he was coming. Uh, he was coming on that night. Where is he coming from? From God, from out of the temple. So, like we said, painting the doorpost of the source. Uh, did I not write it down? Yeah, I did right here. Okay, sorry. <laughs> here we see atonement on behalf of the house of Israel being applied to the doorpost of the earthly temple. People who have sinned unintentionally are still included in the Passover. This is not the original directive for this. So in Numbers 9, 6 to 11, we have the second Passover. If you are unclean, meaning if you touch a dead body, or if you're on a long journey, these guys come to, to Moses and say, hey, uh, this guy fell dead right in front of us. I mean, he was falling on us. We just reached out. Now we touched him. So we buried him. So... Now we're unclean. Why can't we have the Passover? So Moses goes, he says, hold on a second. He goes to inquire of God. God comes to him and says, blah, blah, blah. Moses comes back to these guys and says, the Lord said, if you're unclean from touching a dead body or you're on a long journey and you can't come right now, you keep the Passover in the second month on the 14th day. It's just what I thought was odd is in this uh, picture here of the Rosh Hashanah that we're following through the New Year's Day, first day of the first month, is linked to Passover. But in the end, in Ezekiel's temple here, whenever this is, if it's going to be or whatever, God has this way of saying, I'm going to include everybody, even the unintentional sinners, I'm taking care of their problems too. And everybody's included. Hmm. So symbols and concepts linked to Rosh Hashanah, number one, Passover. Purification and cleansing, redemption, freedom and safety, weakness under oppression, linked to humble believers, linked to foreign believers, if circumcised. It's almost the identical list for the dove. Everything associated with the dove is associated with New Year's Day. Interesting. Just, just saw that reiterated over and over. It's like, that's, that's neat. God is really trying to make a point here <laughs> what if we can figure out what it is <laughs> if only we had more of the book to figure out what the plan is yeah if he wrote everything down <laughs> let's see uh you said 19 is where you're going next yeah the only thing i really had on verse 19 which i thought was just was an interesting detail to me is um that when he talked about uh, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families uh, from the ark. And we've talked about that, you know, going back to evolution, even um, that he didn't, or even last week, I think a little bit to where he didn't have to have every, you know, there, there's, there's millions, not millions, but there's thousands of types of cat. He didn't have to have every type of cat, every type of bird, every type of, creature yeah they're grouped in families which if they had if they're grouped in families and they have this fullness of dna so to speak and then when they go out and they mate and they spread and mate and spread and mate and spread 
they adapt and change and their fur coats change depending on where they are on the earth and so forth. Like I said, yeah. we, we believe in a type of evolution. Yeah. We don't believe in uh, microevolution. We believe in macroevolution. And um, so I just thought it was an interesting detail or a little detail about yeah. what you said families, their grouping, not necessarily specifics. So eight twenty, a little more on uh, burnt offerings. Let's see. I've already made the point. Um, Leviticus one three. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. The extra areas there, verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, verse 14. If his offering is of the, to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds. But the only purpose stated there is that he may be acceptable to the Lord or accepted by the Lord. Little note, um... This is not a, let's see, sin offering, I don't believe. But in Leviticus 2, grain offerings, no birds are mentioned. Leviticus 3, peace offerings, no birds are mentioned. Birds are mentioned for sin offerings at the very, very last. Uh, not in chapter 4, but that continues on in chapter 5, so we see that in chapter 5. And no birds are mentioned in End of five and beginning of six for guilt offerings. Just saying, even though this could be a sin offering, I guess, I think it's more of a burnt offering, as in we want to be accepted by God. We're looking for acceptance. I got nothing else in eight. Yeah. Okay with the, well, the only thing I see in eight is, uh, well, not a big deal, but God mentions the intentions of the man's heart. Is evil. Of verse 21. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I judge the whole earth because you are evil, but uh, in the end of all things, I know you're basically the same creature, and I'm just saying I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to judge you again this way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so going to chapter 9, uh, again, like we talked about, God is reinstating, so to speak, this original plan. He blessed Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply the earth. He, there also seems to be now a division that will be put between man and animals where they will fear man. Um, so it's not just everything is, you know, back in Genesis uh, 2, you know, the animals came to Adam and Adam named them. I mean, there was just that yeah. peace between them. And now, it came to Noah then. Yeah, it came to Noah. And so now, you know, there's now this division um, between men and animals where, there, where there's a sphere um, that's going to be in between them that divides them, so to speak. There was an, a note or an idea that I was going to throw out also is you can go in, go in a park and sit down. Squirrels and birds and chipmunks are all just hanging out together. I mean, they're not maybe cooperating, but <laughs> they're all sitting beside each other eating the same whatever. Yeah. Seeds, bugs, grass, etc. <laughs> and... Then you walk up in the middle of them, and all three of them take off because you walk up. Yeah. Why? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Let's see. In Let's in see. nine one, it says, "Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth." So, this is one thing we're we're going to kind of touch on Nimrod for it's all over with. But just the idea of of what Mark just said is the intention of man's heart is still evil. So God says, "Spread out." 
And then in Genesis 10 and 11, Nimrod says, hey, everybody, let's get together and build up. <laughs> God wants us to spread out in all directions. Nimrod's trying to build up yeah. to get to heaven. So just an, an idea of rebellion there. Let's see. The fear of dread of you. This is 9-2. The fear and dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens. The fear is mor'ah. First mention of fear is in the garden. We were afraid of God when we heard the sound of him walking in the garden. So in the beginning, I would imagine that they didn't fear God, and animals didn't fear us, and we all got along peacefully yeah. eating salads. Yeah. God eating a salad. At the same table, we're eating a salad, and the chimpanzee is t- t- sitting there eating his own salad. and <laughs> We're all getting along. But Well, now we can eat animals because... Well, that's why they're running from us. They're afraid we're going to try to eat them all the time. <laughs> we just can't eat the lifeblood and send them. Yeah. Let's see. Speaking of, the lifeblood doesn't mean you can't eat like a raw steak. I know I've even heard people argue right. about, you know, oh, this, the steak still has blood in it. No, well, it's talking about lifeblood. You can't eat an animal that's still alive. That's what it's talking about. I think it means you should also drain it, but I'm not going to get uh, legalistic down to sure. the point of, oh, it has another drop in it. I can't eat this. Yeah. Drain it out. I mean, if you. Well, th- there's also different kinds of meats. I mean, obviously, you can't eat raw. I mean, you shouldn't eat raw hamburger meat. Um, you can eat raw hamburger. You shouldn't eat raw pork and chicken. Oh, well, yeah. Well, raw hamburger meat's just disgusting, so you shouldn't do it. <laughs> I don't care. On a health issue. I guess pork is unkosher anyway. We shouldn't say that. We shouldn't even talk about porks. Yeah. <laughs> Bad bacon. But on a, on a healthy, health issue, yeah, uh, pork and chicken. But steaks, steak will be the same thing as a burger. You may not like it, but it's not going to kill you. It's just as far as blood, you need to get it out. Right. I was going to say, I don't want the blood in anyway. I don't like the way it smells. I don't like it either. It smells like a wet dog. <laughs> you ever notice that? <laughs> You're eating a burger and you oh, still got too much blood in it, and it's like, oh, God. It's like your dog has been out in the rain, and he's, <laughs> he's nasty, filthy, and he walks up to you, and he wants you to pet him, and he's, I'm not petting you. My wife makes fun of me, so if I if I take a bite in a hamburger and I see there's pink, I just kind of put it down. Nope. <laughs> not for me. Not eating anymore. <laughs> no. She makes fun of me all the time when I do that, but. I like that because if you put it down, I, there's more for me to eat then. <laughs> Let's see. Hmm. I don't have tons left here. No, what a, uh, what a, well, I already talked about Covenant, really. I did uh, kind of review that just to make a comment about it last week. We had said, Covenant seven times and the word life seven times or Kai. Yeah. I did I did write a little note that I mean, it was just a little interesting tidbit for me where um, you know, some versions of the Bible say rainbow. The ESV just says bow. And uh, when I looked into it, you know, it can refer to rainbow because of the water and all that stuff, but another definition can be like a bow from an archer. Yeah. And I just wrote that it's kind of interesting that um, you know, Obviously, it's a rainbow of colors because of the water and the atmosphere, but also wrote down that if it's a bow from an archer, um, you know, to me, I, I thought about, you know, if, if you're a swordsman or, or whatever, you, you, you hang it up on the wall or as a reminder, yeah. 
you know, and to me, it's like God putting his bow there to remind him that he went to war with the world. He saved one man that he found favor with. And this is a reminder that he's not going to attack yet. It's this constant reminder. This is my covenant with you that I'm not going to attack um, with water and all this stuff. But um, obviously Jesus is going to come back with war against the world again differently. But um, I just thought it was kind of interesting, kind of a pausing of war, so to speak. This is my contract with the rest of mankind because of you, Noah. Yeah. I want to pause. <clears throat> I want to pause. So. I was looking at something. Uh, there's these verses right here about the lifeblood. Let's see. Along with Leviticus 17.11 and Deuteronomy 12.23, the origin of the Jewish practice of cashering. Cashering is to make something kosher. See the, the link there in words. You're basically turning it, just turning it into a verb. I'm going to cashier something, but it's real simple. I just looked up uh, cashering, and what was it? The first website I went to was called My Jewish Learning. So there's a, a neat article there basically telling you that there are four primary ways to uh, cashier something. So if you have used some dishes or a pot, or spoons, and you've cooked some things that are unkosher or uh, shouldn't be together. We'll say that. I don't think a Jew is going to eat anything unkosher, but you can eat something that is kosher, and some other things are not kosher to cook that the meal with it until that utensil has been properly cleaned. So there was four, I think, four different levels or four different ways to cashier something. One way was to uh, you have to clean it very, very good first. Then you let it sit for one day. That's simply uh, wash with water till evening. You're you're unclean. That kind of con- you see that all through the Old Testament in the in the Torah. So uh, you wash whatever it is very very well. Leave it sit for a day. The first way, all of the rest of them are uh, basically fire methods or boiling methods. The first one is to heat the metal until it's red hot. You would need a torch to do this, as is normally done by a rabbi. The other way, the next level up or next level down, would be, uh, what was it, um, like a self-cleaning oven. You basically turn it on until it burns all the stuff off the walls inside. That level of heat is the next level of cashering. The other way is to boil water and then put something you're trying to cashier in the boiling water. Like if you got spoons and utensils and stuff, you can put them in the in the boiling water. And then the last way is like if you're trying to clean your sink. Number one, there's stuff like you cannot cash your porcelain, but you can cash your uh, what's the darn just left me. Gal, not not galvanized steel, but like a stainless steel. Like if you got a stainless steel sink or a stainless steel refrigerator or whatever, if you want to clean that, you can cash that by throwing boiling water on it. So just some neat stuff there. But the whole concept was, uh, I'm not going to remember it. What was it? It was an, uh, basically a Jewish idiom that means what puts it in will take it out. And uh, the woman who's writing the article basically says, uh, it's funny, this is the same idiom that means easy come, easy go, and there's nothing actually easy about cashiering. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just... The concept of this right here started cashiering and originally cashiering before 
uh, the fire and everything, I think it had a, something to do with packing meat in bl- uh, salt to take all the blood out. Mm. Which we, as a culture like we are, before refrigeration, we used to pack meats in salt to uh, keep disease and germs, etc., from starting, to keep rot from happening. So that's how you get good country ham. <laughs> Smack full of salt. Okay. I did uh, on verse 18 where um, it adds parentheses where it says Ham was the father of Canaan. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting to where why I thought, why would he focus on Ham? And why would he add this detail when he didn't really add the details? And then I go, you look further and you, verse 22, where it talks about Ham, you know, uh, telling his two brothers um, about their father's nakedness and the curse be Canaan yeah. and so forth. I think to me, it kind of reiterates this parenthesis of pay attention to Ham, pay attention to the Canaanites because yeah. something is coming that is, is a good detail. And as we'll look at in chapter 10 and go into Jonah, you have, you know, from Ham, you come from to Nineveh, uh, to Nimrod, to Nineveh. So yeah. I think it's an important little, just, just a tidbit there of, Preparing you for what's going to take place in the coming verses, so to speak. I was going to say I have some some notes on uh, five through seventeen. I wouldn't go through all the reiteration of covenants, etc. Mm-hmm. But before we do, jump towards uh, a long, possibly a long explanation for the Ham Canaan situation. I didn't want to skip over this and then come back to it. Uh, for your lifeblood, this is what was this five. Yeah, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Do you notice there? It says, "From every beast, I will require it." There is a reckoning for the lifeblood of man. Does this mean that if a lion kills a man in Africa, that lion's going to have to answer to God? for killing a human being in God's image. Seems to be. I threw that out with somebody one time, and of course he was also of the uh, personality that <laughs> there's no there's no continuation for animals after their body dies, which uh, I don't agree with at all. And I think we've already covered that back in Genesis yeah. 2. Yeah. So uh, either way, just, just an, an idea there. Animals themselves that kill mankind will have to answer in some form or another. That could mean there are animals in the lake of fire. Don't know that, but just throwing it out there for an idea. Sure. Verse 5, we are in 9. Verse 5 is said by the Talmud to be a prohibition against suicide. Do you want to even talk about that or... It's funny you say that because I had a discussion Sunday with someone um, about suicide. And um, I asked a person what he thought about Judas, which I think we've discussed in our very first podcast doing with Matthew. Yeah. I'm about Judas, I think. <clears throat> if Judas went to heaven or hell, et cetera. And, um, and so we were talking about that. And um, he his response was, well, Judas killed himself. So, yeah, he went to hell i said so that's your theory uh of all the things with judas you choose suicide 
He said, yeah. Not that he portrayed the Messiah of the world. No, no. Nothing. Well, no, it was just kind of interesting. And I, <laughs> I said, so you think all people that commit suicide go to hell? He said, yeah, it's murder. And I told him I disagreed. <laughs> and uh, we had a conversation, you know, talked a little bit. And I said, you know, um, the first thing is it, I believe God's grace uh, covers a multitude of sin. And I believe God's grace, sometimes we can cheapen God's grace. And what I mean is, uh, for example, and this is my personal belief, um, say you're following God, you're following God closely. You're, you're a true Christian, you're studying the Bible, you're witnessing all that other stuff. And let's say you slip. Let's say, let's just say you're a married man, you sleep with a woman. And you, after you leave, you get in a car wreck and die. Do you get to heaven or hell? I believe you go to heaven. It and depends if you're Catholic or not. <laughs> That's what we're fixing to get at. So let's go ahead and say that. Did you pay your way out? No. Um, I, I believe you go to heaven. And, here, and here's why. I believe God's grace covers that one accident um, or that one sinful act compared to this genuine believer who is just, you know, made the, made, made a sinful act. Um, so I think sometimes we can cheapen God's grace. And I think that was a, a mistake, you know, a lot of Pentecostals did was, um, yo, you sinned uh, Monday, you get, you got to repent, or you're backslidden, you know, that backslidden thing. Come to the altar and get saved. How many times have you get saved this week? You know, 50 times? Um, <laughs> I personally, again, personal, you know, I don't know. We've never really talked about this, I don't think. I mm, believe, so. I believe you can get saved <laughs> once, and that's it. I don't believe... I believe um, I believe you can lose your salvation, and I don't believe you can get it back. I believe there is a one and done thing. Um, I believe when you're truly genuinely saved, there is a covering over you. Um, and obviously, we're still in this flesh, and, and we still are, are drawn to do sinful things, and we continually ask God for forgiveness. And we see Romans chapter 7, where Paul has this uh, this real... Um, battle between his flesh and his spirit and um, so we see that it's a real battle and um, so a suicide is a murder yes but there's a lot more to it than that I think again God's grace um, I think sometimes physically there's chemicals in our brains that kind of um, make us cause do, things that yeah, make, make us, us do, do things stuff. that we're not in our right mind um, and a person who does that in their right mind? You know, I think it depends on how they lived prior. Um, I think I think suicide really depends on um, the surrounding environment of what led up to it. Um, that's that's that was a lot dealing with salvation stuff, but that's my thoughts on suicide. The uh, person you talked to Sunday, then I would say if if. If it's murder and that's why they went to hell, does that mean all murderers cannot be saved? Well, they did tell me that um, they believe they go to hell because there's no time for to, to repent. And again, that's a, and honestly, that is straight Catholic teaching because I've had this conversation with a very close friend who was raised Catholic. Really? Her, her son committed suicide. He was a very good Christian, but in my my opinion, when I t I had always battled with her on this, that is not the unforgivable sin. No. So if I 
if I go to the priest Sunday afternoon and confess in the confessional all my sins, I have a zero account according to that doctrine. I leave there, and some kid on a skateboard bumps into me on the street, and I cuss at him. I just sinned. Now yeah. I'm not. Now I'm in negative again. <laughs> so I try to. Number one, it's a oh, system of work, so I have to do something good to get back to zero. <laughs> but say so we we sin Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. We come back to the priest. You say I sinned, and we we keep doing this all the time. Try to keep a a zero account. We have to confess every single little sin, which number one, you're not going to be able to do. No. But so here's the concept of purgatory coming in. Purgatory is not, or it does not address unsaved people. Unsaved people by the doc, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory go to hell, period. Unsaved people, hell. Purgatory, though, for saved people, if you have gone to the confessional one day and you sin the next four or five days and then die in a car accident, legitimate. But you don't go to heaven, you go to purgatory. You have to go there because you don't have a zero account. You have to burn off your sin. You have to pay for some of it yourself. The whole concept there is 99% Jesus. You got to do your 1% which completely nulls the cross down yeah, to nothing. Say that cheapens, again, that cheapens <clears throat> God's grace and that cheapens the sacrifice. Made. Right. So the conversation I used to have with her was, uh, this is long before, before her son uh, died, is that if it is murder and you must confess every single sin, if there is a person who is, who is saved so they can go to purgatory, but they do a sin that they don't confess, they're still saved. They don't. If, if you don't have time to confess after you've done the act before you die, doesn't mean you're not saved and you're going to hell right. on any other count. But we throw suicide in here. So that's my thing. I don't think suicide is a definite you're going to hell. But on the, that's, I guess that would be like a negative defense. But on a positive defense, um, if you're saved, you're saved. If you're not, you're not. It doesn't matter which sins you're into and which ones still have your goat. Because, I mean, the Bible does talk about there are sins that we don't even know about that we do. Yeah. Um, that's why, the again, going on Leviticus, that's why we— Unintentional make, sins. We make all these sacrifices because we don't know. God is that holy and we're that evil yeah. that there are—I mean, if you look in Leviticus and you will see— um, you know, well, shoot, look through the first, look through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and you will see um, how impossible it is to stay righteous. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's impossible. Hence Jesus. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that was a good point to where, you know, you can't, it's not the unforgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin. Yeah. And, um, you know, just because you're choosing this one, what my end to her was, I see what he did as, because she came to me, it was always a discussion we had always had and disagreed on. She comes to me now, it's really hard for a mother to say, my son's in hell now. When she knows wow. he was doing his best his entire life to serve, and the older he got, I had some years to, to teach him in teenage class. It was really hard for her to accept, now he's in hell. Well, so if she comes to me, we have some conversations like, 
almost like, what do I do with this doctrine, I think, now? And to me, is no different than any other disobedient thing I do. It is not God's will for me to do some of the things I do. Yeah. I am not always walking in the Spirit, and I'm not always holy and great. And sometimes I'm flash-thinking horrible and would never come in here and tell you or anybody else what I do. Yeah. I go to God and tell him what I did with my head hung low, hung low again. <laughs> yeah. And it's because I have been disobedient. I've still been saved the whole time. That's why I needed to be saved. But what he did was not God's plan for his life path. He cut it short by his own decision. Right. But it was still simple disobedience. He did not do what he was supposed to do with his life. Yeah. Now, after you commit that one particular kind of disobedience, no, you can't go to him and repent. But I could still die before I go repent from the next thing I do that is disobedient for his life plan for me. Right. Well, even, even you know, we think of, we think of suicide as like, you know, <clears throat> you ending it very quickly, hanging yourself or, or otherwise. But, I mean, there, there are different types of suicide, meaning, um, you know, there are people with cancer who, um, you know, there, there's, 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 there's two worlds of thought of, I mean, you do chemo and um, radiation and stuff, and you're really destroying your body yeah, um, to get rid of this cancer. And um, so you're knowingly destroying your body to help get rid of this disease, to help prolong it eventually. In a hope that you kill it and not yourself. Right, exactly. So so, so there is a borderline there. There, there are people who, um, you know, will willfully not take the medicine and knowingly die or knowingly that they're going to die they just choose a different route and say i'm going to at least live normal while i still have some but time in a sense they're committing <clears throat> suicide they're, they are they are allowing themselves to die um, in, in that sense right there i agree with you because if you had taken the medicine you could have killed the cancer and survived through it another 15 20 years right so in that sense yeah you're making a decision just let it take over yeah. and let it win so I mean, there so there's all kinds of concepts of, of suicide, but um, I think the argument of every suicidal case, every individual that commits suicide goes to hell, I think is a weak. Um, I think it's just a weak argument. Yeah, I, I don't think it's true. Yeah. Now it doesn't mean I encourage people to commit suicide and and to get out because I, I do think there is like you talked about. You know, he ended his life too early. I think there is. Um, Sometimes we take things into account to ourselves, and God doesn't want that to happen. So, yeah. so. Well, suicide or anything else, he doesn't want us doing that. Don't, right. don't take your life in your hands. That's, that's disobedience. Yeah. It's the same thing. That's why we had Ishmael. Yeah. It's why we, in the long run, if you think about the, the disobedience of them taking all that situation in their own hands, Muhammad, Islam, here we are. Here is a, a world in, in very big turmoil with a, a rising religion that all came out of that single act of disobedience of Abraham taking it into his own hands. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Let's see, passing on from that one, verse 6. That was a verse 5 Talmud note. Verse 6, the Talmud says, is a prohibition against abortion. I'm talking about because 
man's created in the image of God and yeah. we shouldn't take a life. I also noticed something you and I had said in the last podcast and we looked at with uh, Cain when he killed Abel. My, my brother's keeper. I don't think God has stated it beforehand, so he's going to state it here. End <laughs> of verse five. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. <laughs> God is saying, just in case y'all had forgotten what happened with, with uh, Cain and Abel, and his little smart mouth comment to me, I want to make sure you remember that I am making you responsible for your man, your fellow man. This is part of the contract, the yeah. covenant. I mean, did you come across the the uh, statement Seven Commandments of Descendants of Noah? No. It's, an, it's another uh, Talmud note I found. Let's see. God is making us responsible for the care of fellow man now. Talmud says these verses here obligate the whole of humanity to keep something labeled as the seven commandments of the descendants of Noah. So the things that are put right here in uh, the contract, basically, I think we're going all the way through verse 17, but the things that are taken out of this by, by Talmud interpreta uh, interpretation is you are supposed to establish courts of justice. You are supposed to refrain from blaspheming the God of Israel. You're supposed to refrain from idolatry Refrain from sexual perversion, refrain from bloodshed, refrain from robbery. You're not supposed to eat meat cut from living animals. I don't know, possibly for a humane versus a humane way of killing versus raw meat is not prohibited or just drain all the blood out. But either way, you're not supposed to eat uh, meat cut from a living animal. But in keeping these, Talmud says even the Gentiles who observe the seven commandments of the descendants of Noah can meet God's full approval. This is directly after the flood. This is early, early Torah, and the Talmud is interpreting it, saying that even Gentiles can come into acceptance of God. They just keep these seven rules. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Let's see. So you were at 18 a while ago. <clears throat> we're on the tail end of the Ham and Canaan situation. A lot of funky stuff right here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one comment I made to myself, just uh, 18, I think it is. No, it's 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So everything we're going to talk about in next podcast, uh, as we go through some of the family names and family lineages and stuff, all the people in Genesis 10 and 10, uh, Genesis 11 are basically from these three sons right here. Yeah. Did you look into Noah being a man of the soul, planting the vineyard? Are we going to talk about wine or anything? Oh. Are we allowed to? <laughs> I, I've, I've heard people, you know, talk about this. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think... I've heard a lot about the the story. Um, I mean, you know, I just wrote down the usual where, uh, you know, Ham told his two brothers and his, you know, uncovered his nakedness and he didn't honor his father. And instead of fixing a situation, he just gossiped and ratted him out. And his other two sons, I walked in backwards and covered their father with a garment. And I wrote down, you know, again, it's a re 
it's almost like a retelling of the story of Genesis where Adam and Eve sinned. God took a garment, covered them um, here. Mm. Um, I'm not saying Noah sinned by drinking, um, but he's naked and, you know, uh, evidently there was a, there's some kind of factor where you shouldn't be, you know, you should be covering. So um, his two brothers, the two sons came and covered him with a garment, um, covered his nakedness. God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. Um, so so they heard be, it likened to Genesis, uh, Adam um, and Eve. So there seems to be some kind of parallel going on. And um, because after God covered him with the garments, God brings out, okay, here's the situation, man, you're cursed. Woman, you're cursed. Earth, you're cursed. And here Noah comes out and says, okay, Ham, Canaan's cursed. And then he goes through this this, this cursing yeah, um, and, and these blessings of these other sons who gave him a garment. So I just saw kind of like a little parallel uh, there with Genesis. Huh, I had um, never seen that. As far as the, the drinking of the wine and getting drunk, you know, I thought, you know, one, we don't know. If God told him not to get drunk, um, obviously it, it, it <laughs> is a rule set um, in the New Testament where not to get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And and we see Solomon talking about you know wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and, and there's different things with wine. And being drunkenness obvi- obviously is 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 a sin that we know of. But as far as Noah, we don't know he knows that. I'll couple that though with with uh, Paul's directive to Timothy. Timothy had some kind of stomach issue. Paul sure. says, "Drink some wine for that." Right. He's saying, "Drink a glass. Don't drink a bottle. Don't drink five <laughs> bottles. You don't need to have. You don't drink. Don't drink it every day. Drink some Nyquil. Yeah, drink. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "You got stomach issues today. Drink a glass of it, and you don't need to drink it every single day that comes." Yeah. But there's also I know that we're going to have a bunch of people saying there's issue of different kinds of levels of wine etc i've done that study I've, I've looked through and traced the different words for it in some places this word refers to something fermented this other word usually doesn't but in this other case over this other verse it does so i don't think that argument holds a can of water i don't think it holds any wine either yeah well <laughs> <laughs> well you know a lot of people will, will look at this whole story uh, about you know Ham and and Shem and Japheth and and the father's nakedness and and they see the word drunk and wine and it's like oh it's about you know and they'll yeah. focus they'll center on that and the same thing in John where Jesus well, nothing else is ever said about it again yeah, and Jesus turns the water into wine and people will talk about oh look you know Jesus approves of drinking all this stuff and when people talk about that I'm like you you're missing the point of the story you're missing everything else. Everything you are else. you are centering on this little element, and you are missing this big picture. And people just—I think a lot of times people just like to focus in on some stupid things. Yeah, that really still their they're mind. part of the story, but they're not relevant to the completion of what's going on. Yeah, and here, um, you know, it's a minute detail. He, it could have said he fell asleep and passed out. He got overheated and just. Passed out. I mean, you know, again, it's just a minute detail. The thing, yeah. the 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 thing we find out is that Ham was disobedient. Ham was following uh, the intention of the heart, not not doing the right thing. And his son, the other two sons, were um, apparently doing the right thing. And so, and then we find out the cursing of Canaan, the cursing of Ham, 
And I think that's the whole purpose of this story is we find out about the Canaanites. We find that about Nimrod. We find that about um, this distinction between these people groups. Yeah. So people, again, don't worry about, uh, I don't think we should really, I mean, we just talked very frequently about the wine. I did a little uh, study a while back on wine, like not in the Bible, but just wine in general, why it exists, what's it for, where did it come from, et cetera, how is it made? Um, Noah was the first grape grower. Did he know this would happen? So could he have known about fermentation? Fermentation, by definition, basically is real easy. There's natural yeast living on the outside of the grape. There's natural sugars living inside the grape. They're not living. They're, they're, in, they're growing inside the grape. Yeah. Uh, when you, basically, when you put or pick the grapes, you put them in a, a vat or a, whatever to stomp them, a wine press. When you break the skins, you are allowing the, the yeast to get to the sugars the yeast start eating the sugar. When they produce a byproduct, which is a gas called ethanol, I mean, they're just like us. They eat something and they produce gas. (laughs) (laughs) But if you keep this bottled up and contained and the gas is basically uh, retained in the liquid, this ethanol gas is what intoxicates you. But you can find this happening with all kinds of fruit when you let it kind of rot. When the skin busts, the sugars that are inside start getting eaten by whatever yeast is living on the outside. Yeah. Wine companies actually wash off the natural yeast that's out in the field. They wash that off completely so it's not there. They add their own yeast so that it gets a brand flavor. So their particular brand of yeast has that same flavor every single time, so they can call that their brand. But anyway, I, I've, I've looked into it before. It's, just a, it's a natural thing that's there, but it really just... It, it strikes just like you said. People get hung up on one thing, yeah. and never mention anything else from the rest of the story. Right. It's like so. What, what's going on here with Ham? What's going on with? What did he do? Thanks for listening to the Two Spies podcast with David and Mark. Don't forget to check out twospies.net for daily devotionals, writings on various topics, and separate Bible studies. Help us out by subscribing to the podcast, write a review on iTunes, and spread the word.